0: Every celebrity, their thought on Thursday and Friday would be, how do we skip (laughs) today? Beckham just flipped that on his head. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream, wherever you get your podcasts, and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to
1: be there. Yeah, it's only 10 past nine. It is Thursday morning. You're watching OTP AM, and it is very much time for you had to be there. He's not here, but he is over there. Michael Verney, good morning to you. That's how we are. The landing tra-
2: ship along the <laughs> keys, unfortunately. <laughs> so Traffic is brutal. I found a spot here, uh, and I'm just hoping I'm not ejected or thrown up on the back of a, a lorry or something during the show, but we'll do our best.
1: <laughs> listen to, at the very least, we'll do some good numbers out of that, so uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that if it crops up. We'll get into it, because it's, it's a great list. It's notable by some absences, which we might get to, we might get to in a little bit, but uh, kick us off. We're going to go in chronologic, chronological order here, and we're kicking off with Joe Canning, Fitzcup, Fitzgibbon Cup Final 2008.
2: Uh, Yeah, no, it was actually only a Fitzgibbon Cup group game. game. And I picked this game probably because I was involved in it myself and I'd heard so much about Joe growing up and I'd watched him on TV and various bits and pieces. But it's only when you see someone in the flesh that you realise, okay, this lad is a little bit different. And there's actually a lot of mitigating circumstances with this game. So we were. Uh, we had the possibility of playing Port in the All-Ireland Club final in 08. We were both in the semi-finals and the semi-finals were fixed for 10 days later and there was this big Fitzgibbon Cup game on the Thursday before that. And we, we went over to LIT uh, with UL, obviously a big city derby. Uh, Joe was full forward for them. I was playing cornerback for UL. He was actually only on the pitch 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And within that time, he had scored a penalty, he had scored two frees, and he actually pulled up his hamstring and was leaving the pitch when the ball rolled out over the sideline and Davy got him to hit the sideline with a strained or torn hamstring before he left the pitch and he lofted the sideline ball over the bar and I was just like literally like an audible like gasp of breath and thinking this lad is built completely differently.
1: And then left left ten- the pitch afterwards. Or. Yeah, left the pitch. It was literally
2: like the ball was going out over the sideline as he was being helped off by the physio and members of the LAT backroom team. And Davey was literally like, Will you take this? So he gets down, takes the sideline from about 60 yards out with a partially torn hamstring puts it over the bar, and you're just thinking, this is is absolutely ridiculous. Like, that a fella fella can do this and he's injured. And then even just other parts of it then, 10 days later, he scores 1-9 in All-Ireland Club semi-final against Lockmore. A month after that, he breaks our hearts in a club final. And then about three or four months after that, he goes to town on Cork in that famous qualifier. But it was my first insight to see up close and personal... Just how good. You know, you, you hear all the talk and you hear what he's done with and vocation Vocational Schools. You see him on TV and in a couple of club finals and big games. And then you see him up close and you're thinking, OK, the talk is totally warranted. This lad is going to be the next Hurling superstar. And he was. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. At the, end of the ge- at the end of the game, the game finished up level. We needed a win to go through. They needed a draw to go through. What was the difference? Canning's lying ball before he left the pitch I just I was literally rubbing my eyes in, in disbelief at what this guy was able to do and he's only on the pitch 20 minutes
0: He's one of those players Mick when, uh, when you're watching when you go to watch a match in person he's actually we all know he's a big unit but he's nearly bigger than you expect him to be like was it the same on the pitch when you're up close I'm not going to ask you to admit that you were afraid of Joe Canning on the pitch or anything to that effect but he uh, I'm sure when he comes near you on the pitch you know about it
2: Yeah 100% Shane yeah just yeah, he has all the skill, he's a great hand, great wrist, everything like that. But as well as that, he's about 6'3", 6'4". At that time, he was, you know, he was he was only a young fella, but he was such a big strong physical force. Uh you knew if you got the ball in around him or he got the ball in around you that you were probably going to be blown away even physically. And uh yeah, I just that was my first it was my first time to probably share a field with him. We share Where were field, you playing? As I said, I was playing cornerback, back, yeah. So he was in. He was in around. He was full forward, so he would have been in around him. Uh, thankfully, he wasn't marking him. Um, but just even, just to actually see it up close, and it's probably it's a, probably a throwaway game that very very few people remember. But I just remember being hit by this kind of bullet almost and thinking. Yeah, this guy is going to be something else. Were and you chatting
1: ours. about him before, Mick? Like, was there obviously the chat had begun as you say? Well, did you say it was a couple of months before the two twelve match?
2: Uh, this was it was a, about three or four months before that two thousand eight qualifier against Cork down in Temple Stadium, yeah. where he really announced himself. You know, I think he hit something like two eleven, and I think he said since that one of his biggest regrets is playing too well on his you know one of his early Championship games because the bar was set so high. But uh, just the, the chain of events that happened, you know, ten days later he was man the match in a club semi final. A month after that he was winning another club title, and then four or five months later he was delivering one of the probably one of the great inter county performances. And just it was my first time to share a field, with and I just remember thinking this guy is completely different. And you, just it's it's nice to it's nice to know what it's like to even share a field with him and know what he can do on a pitch. And I, I like any time he stepped up to anything in a game thereafter. I was always thinking, yeah, he's probably going to nail this, uh, regardless of whether it's the four line balls against Galway in that semi, or against Limerick in that semi final in twenty or whatever it is, and it's like what Shane says there. It's like going to a match with David Clifford, where Dave, David Clifford is player now. You literally think anything is possible, and and that given day it was.
0: Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here slightly, Mick. But where where does Canning rank in in terms of hurling's greatest placed ball hitters?
2: Oh Jesus, Shane, very very high. Um, I'd have TJ Reid up ridiculously high as well because I just think he's so consistent now and he's a he's probably a 95, 96%. Uh, but as regards being able to hit a line ball from anywhere inside 100 yards and have the potential to score, being able to hit a free anywhere 120 yards and maybe even further at times, he's mm. probably right up there, isn't he? Like he was hitting freeze lads in all oh, our club finals when he was 16 or 17. Like, do you know what I mean? And he was put, I think he scored a line ball. Uh, from midfield against Loch Gray in a Galway County final when he was fifteen, senior county final. You now this is just like there's lads that are able to put over line balls now. I don't know if any anybody will be able to do it as well as he did. And just like they're not scoring chances, lads, unless you're a freak and he was an absolute hurling freak.
1: When you're when you're like you say you weren't marking him but just one last one on it before we move on to your next one. like when you're on the pitch or like your man next to you is sort of marking him like what's the chat beforehand or what's the chat on the pitch about like given everything you've just said about how, how impossible a task it is to get the better of him what's the, is it just like listen we're just going to accept that he's going to score 10 or 11 points today, and that's it and if we do that and get out of dodge it's not a bad day
2: kind of yeah it's kind of like deny, deny, deny Get just keep the ball away from him as much as you possibly can And it's probably having real serious conversations with guys out the field where if ball is coming into Canning, it has to be at least bad ball. It has to be ball that gives the defender a chance because if he's getting advantageous ball into him, like you're on a hiding to nothing no matter who you are.
1: Right, we skip forward three years. It's 2011. It's the Kilkenny Senior Hurley Championship final replay. It's uh, Owen Larkin up against Henry's uh, Ballyhale. Larkin was 27 and he was a well-established player, uh, Kilkenny player, obviously, at that point. hurler of the Year in 2008. Set this one out for us. Uh,
2: yeah, so I was actually I was at both games. I was at the drawing game uh, where Henry had to hit free. To, to level it in horrendous conditions and one of the village players was literally four yards away from him with, with the hurl in his face and it was not it was not blown or retake or right like that he just took it and put it over the bar and it was, uh, it was it was sent to a replay then I went down to the replay and to me this is the greatest club hurling performance of all time um, it, literally everything Larkin did on that day turned to gold and I'm not just talking about his freeze and his freeze were impeccable he hit 8 from 8 uh, he ended up with 111, uh, 8 frees. Literally, his hooking, his blocking, his hand passing, His the goal he got was just ridiculous within such a confined space with four guys on him. I, I've never seen as perfect a display of hurling as this. It was a brilliant individual display. It was a brilliant individual display within a brilliant team display. He brought teammates into the game. Conditions were really, really rough. And you know, when you just see a guy. Literally taking a game by the scruff of the neck, he literally took the game by the scruff of the neck. And as you say, there, uh, Adrian, this was a, a, a Ballyhale team with a young TJ Reid who's going to is going to be one of the best players of all time. Henry, who is widely regarded as you know one of the best of all time, Chaffits, Patrick, uh, young Richie Reid in goals, Colin Fenley, Colin Fenley and Jackie Terrell actually both got sent off the same day. Um, so like the village were without their other main talisman in Jackie Terrell and Larkin just grew another foot taller he was completely unmarkable on that day and I'd encourage anybody to go and find it on Twitter it's on the Villages account it's a 60 minute game 60 minute club game and there's 4 minutes of outrageous highlights from Larkin it's literally a highlight reel of it's everything that encompasses uh, you know, a good hurling display it's all the scores, all the flicks he gets back and hooks uh Owen read at one stage and the ball goes wide. I, I've never seen, it's like, you know, you talk about giving a player 10 out of 10. He literally did not do anything wrong. There were, no, like, this is Nadia Kamenech-esque. Uh, like, there is no point you could take away from his performance. It was absolutely outrageous.
0: That's the that's the stamp of a leader, isn't it? You know, when 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 a team goes down to fourteen men, some players wilt and kind of curl up under the pressure, but uh, and accept defeat. But you know, when Terry gets sent off in that game, Larkin obviously almost it it almost pushes him on further, as you as you say, Mick.
2: Yeah, the great players, I think, Shane sometimes realise uh, with different scenarios in games. Okay, somebody's gone off injured. I need to even rise a bit. And even, like, even you could say maybe Shane Walsh the other night for Kill McCood was having a a tough evening. Paul Mannion goes off. He probably realises, OK, the pressure is on me a little more now. But the great players don't wilt under that pressure. They grow with that pressure. And definitely Larkin did that day. And it was, like, it was literally the same day that we're looking out, uh, looking out the windows and seeing today real wet, miserable uh, afternoon down in Nolan Park. And they're against, you know, one of the great club teams of all time. And this fella just delivers a display that, yeah, I haven't seen. I haven't seen the like of it before, and I haven't seen it since. And that's eleven years ago. I always go back to that. Is you know the greatest individual club display I've ever seen. And I've stood in the same pitch as Brian Whelan, where he's done crazy things. But even as good as he uh, as as he was, I'm not sure if he delivered that perfect display like Larkin did here. I remember chatting Niall Rigney about when he was the James Stevens manager, and he just said, like, as a manager. This is literally dreamland. You're looking at a player literally just lifting the whole team up and taking them by the scruff of the neck. And everything he did seemed to give more lads around him confidence. And I'd say lads around him did things maybe that day that they haven't done or they didn't do before or since just because of the confidence that he bred
0: into them that day. Yeah. like 111. Like 111 is a scandalous individual scoreline. But then when you think about it, it's probably it's probably not even the, the, you know, the, the highest he's ever scored at club level. Like one eleven is is remarkable individual scoring, but he's probably he's probably he was probably so used to doing that in the Kilkenny Championship as well, Mick.
2: Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, he would have been. You know, even he broke onto the Kilkenny panel as a result of having an unbelievable year out centre forward. That was his kind of his. Uh, that was his statement season. I think it was in was it all four or five where he was called in as a result of uh, you know when the village ended up winning the club All Ireland, and this is one eleven of oh, one twenty, and like this is before this is before. Uh, you know the last five or six years where lads are probably routinely putting that up at club level. Mm. The ball is maybe a bit lighter. Uh, you know hurdles are of a lot better standard. Lads are better conditioned probably. This was yeah, this is absolutely outrageous tally. And I uh, I challenge anybody to find a better hurling performance in a in a club game than this. It's outrageous.
0: Is is that a fair argument? I'm just looking at his unlocking uh, stats for Michael Kenny here and like. He's got the eight all Irelands, but only two, only two all stars. Mick, like, it, it, does that hint at a, at an underrated player perhaps at county level?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, underrated would be the word you'd use. Um, he has a harder year in there as well, mm. but uh, I think it's a harder year from 08, the uh, year to beat Watford in yeah. the final. But he definitely he definitely would have been underrated. Yeah, just because I suppose it's only natural when you have uh, in the same team JJ Delaney, Tommy Walsh, Noel Hickey. Henry Shefflin, uh, Richie Power, Eddie Brennan, uh, but he was yeah, I just yeah, I just think he was unbelievable throughout his Kilkenny career. They probably haven't replaced him yet and probably will be a while replacing him in that sense of a real dogged half forward that gets up and down the line and does that work but can also kill you on the scoreboard as well and just an unbelievable hand as well such a good hand in the air so deceptive that left-hander that comes in behind you on the high ball and uh, very very hard to deal with great player
1: um, They had a tight turnaround then because of the, the replay nature of and Jackie suspended and they lose out to alert uh, I think it was about six days later by, by three points again he scores 11 points by the way so uh, that's what you're dealing <laughs> with there Move on to selection number three we're skipping ahead seven years now 2018 it's the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas it's Khabib beating McGregor and the context here Khabib is the undefeated lightweight champion McGregor's been uh, stripped of his title I think at that point due to inactivity if I'm right the Diaz loss and the rematch win was done it was a year on from the Mayweather nonsense at the same venue I think Uh, and a bad tempered build up
2: yeah very bad tempered Um, I was over there um, in media capacity um, I kind of uh, was <laughs> letting, letting on letting you on didn't was, need the inverted on, commas I was,
1: there we, we understood
2: <laughs> <laughs> letting, on, I was, letting on I was working but I wasn't really working it was actually we were knocked out with a hurling championship before that year and I tried to turn a negative into a positive uh, that fight was actually on the same day as my birthday so I gone on to one of my mates who actually lives in lives in China but was over doing a bit of business in America and I said we need to meet in Vegas and try and go to this fight or whatever. So I actually went and got my accreditation and it was at all the the build up to it. And as you say, Adrian, it was very bad tempered at that time. It was, uh, it was probably, was, and probably still is one of the biggest UFC fights in history. And there was so much kind of riding on it, um, I'd enjoy uh playing a bit of blackjack and doing playing a bit of roulette and anything I anything I won in the build up to the fight, rather than losing it at another table, I decided to invest it in McGregor. So I had a good I, I had a good few quid on McGregor going into the going into the fight. Uh and then you kinda of see maybe some of the nonsense that he was coming out with in the, the pressers in the days beforehand and you might think maybe he's not uh in the best mental state maybe coming into this fight. But the whole build up to it, like I was it was at a time when I probably had bought into McGregor quite a bit uh, and he probably hadn't uh, maybe studied his reputation too much at that stage. But I was kind of nervous even watching the fight with a lovely lovely view of the fight. It was absolutely brilliant. It was so tense in the days coming up to it. And even the atmosphere around Vegas was very, very tense. Uh, And then the fight started and, you know, Khabib delivered an absolute exhibition of... Just grappling and being able just to grind McGregor down and just take his striking completely out of the equation. Um, but it was just so tense during the fight, uh, and a lot. Listen, a lot of a lot of this is to do with just having been there for the fight and the build up, and having been there for the absolute chaos after. I've I've never. I've never been at any sporting event that resembled anything like that in the aftermath.
1: Well, it was like you'd spoke about the nature of the fight, and it was obviously very personal for Khabib, and that became really evident. So there's a fourth-round stoppage, he gets him in a a neck crank, and McGregor taps out, um, and um, Khabib barks down at him from a standing position. uh, Not entirely unfamiliar to Irish football fans, maybe, or Man United football fans, in a way that looks like he's saying, almost, take that, you... Star, 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 uh, and he flings his mouth guard down, flings himself over the top of the octagon, and all hell breaks loose. Where were you sat for all that? I
2: was sat up in, in the media center, uh, as I said, working, doing a bit, doing a bit, doing a bit of, doing a bit of work. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing because, like, he's such a he's such a humble kind of soft natured fella outside of the octagon, an absolute killer inside, but so respectful. And it was clear how McGregor and maybe members of his team, probably Dylan Dannis in particular, had gotten that much under his skin mm. that it just caused him to completely snap. Imagine to say a guy could be that, not relaxed inside the cage, but was able to stick to his game plan, do everything that you know he does best. And then nearly the second the bell was rang, uh, maybe there's a few people shouting bits and pieces at him and he throws his mouth guard and just goes with like, flying kung fu kick in the direction of Dylan and uh, I know John Kavanagh wasn't too far away. And it was just absolute chaos, absolute chaos. They probably didn't have enough security guards there on the night. Uh, it was just madness in the few minutes thereafter. And then we were all trying to get down to the media scrum, to the media tent after, just to see exactly what would happen there. And we were probably waiting about an hour. And Khabib came in and just delivered kind of a speech for about four and a half minutes and there was no questions asked or anything like that he said what he had to say and he left um, and I remember a lot of people getting on to me after because they knew I was over there and just saying you know mind yourself or stay safe or whatever and I remember been at um, some sort of a vodka launch or something the day before one of the big vodka companies that, that sponsors them and I just remember getting a picture with these two models and uh, I just put up a picture Maybe the next day and says uh, on Facebook was like uh, no need to worry, lads. I'm in safe. I'm in safe hands, and it was just yeah, it was just everything about it was just a bit mad. It, like it kind of, and there was a weird vibe around the the strip in Vegas that night. A real weird, dangerous, kind of violent vibe about it. Um, I've never been, you know, at a soccer game in Galatasaray or anything like that, where there's you know where there's that kind of. Uh, violent couldn't be that violent vibe to it. It was uh, such a strange thing to be involved in, but something that I definitely look back on with uh, with great memories. I have to say, it was it's it's one of those you had to be there moments.
0: You can kind of, yeah, you can kind of tell through the TV to an extent you can kind of feel the atmosphere at some of those UFC events, but you can't really, I mean, what, what's those, those walkouts, especially Mick, you know, when, when Sinead O'Connor comes on over the tunnel and you've got so many Irish fans and think it's 20,000 odd people that can get it fit into the, T-Mobile yeah. arena in Vegas. Like, what was that like that, that walkout moment? It's obviously something special when you're there in person.
2: Yeah. Um, even as we're talking about it here now, I'd have, I'd have the goosebumps in it because I love that pageantry element of it. I, I'd be a big wrestling fan and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't hide it. And part of my love of it is the pageantry of it all. And, those walkouts the McGregor walkouts you know I would have loved to have been there if when he fought uh Chad Mendes when Sinead was actually singing live uh but this was this was unbelievable and I think they said it uh even live in commentary looking back at the event after like it, it, McGregor's entrance is one of the great things probably in all of sport and entertainment and you know when he does the the Vince McMahon Billy walk around around the octagon and all that it's just it is. Uh, it's something that it's a. It has to be kind of seen to be believed. Yeah, I. I was so nervous even going into going into the fight, and luckily I, I didn't need to be partial or anything like that. And I was just there kind of as a fan. But it was. Uh, it's definitely something I'd try and do again. I'll put it to you that way.
1: Yeah. Um, right, and from one, obviously, as you say, uh, we've gotten to know McGregor a little bit, uh, a little bit more in the meantime, and uh, a lot of things to not like about him. So, from one person that we, uh, sorry, I definitely struggle to get behind, to another that uh, the entire country is uh, very much behind and really stole the headlines. So, I'll paint a bit of the picture, making you take it up again. Uh, it's Rachel Blackmore. It's at Plutar, Cheltenham in the Gold Cup this year. Um, the context here: she'd been doing some brilliant stuff, big wins, honeysuckle. Son- Apple Tar, uh, Envoy Alain over previous years. She'd an entry Grand National under a belt, top jockey at Cheltenham last year um, and had done well even on Honeysuckle at Cheltenham that week. But no female jockey had ever won the Cheltenham Gold Cup. That and the disappointment of having some come so close in 2021.
2: Yeah, uh, I suppose that's a lot of it, Adrian, is how much she'd achieved the year before. Uh, I wasn't at Cheltenham the year before. There was no Irish media mm-hmm. at Cheltenham the year before. She'd had six winners first ever female rider to win the champion hurdle, first female rider to be crowned champion jockey uh, at Cheltenham. But she will even say herself after that, you know, there was a little asterisk beside that Cheltenham because she was so disappointed, whether it was uh, picking the wrong horse in the Ch- in the Cheltenham Gold Cup. She stayed on Aplutar in 2021 uh, and gave up the ride in Manella Indo and Jack Kendi ended up winning the race. And there was maybe a bit of regret of maybe... Um, letting uh, letting Manel Indo get a bit too far away from her and not being able to uh, reel him back in in 2021. And for that 2022 Gold Cup, I remember I actually went out and stood uh, infield on the track with uh, Philip Quinn and the Daily Mail at the final fence. And you kind of can't really hear the commentary when you're in there. You're just seeing what you're seeing from fence to fence. And we were looking at the second last jump and you're thinking, she's probably a bit out of contention here. And then all of a sudden, between the second last fence and the last fence, all of a sudden, Rachel takes it up. And you're just thinking, I'm thinking, I'm standing beside the last fence here. Had me phone out, usually wouldn't take any video or pictures or anything like that. But I have a lovely video of Aplutar jumping the last fence with, Ra- with Rachel. And you can just see it. And she's just gone on and she goes on and she wins the Gold Cup by the guts of about 20 lengths. And everything she had achieved until that point... As I said, first lady rider to win the champion hurdle, first lady rider to win the entry uh, Grand National. But this is another step up again. And it's not that it was a demon or anything inside of her, but it was her exercising maybe something or just, you know, getting back a moment maybe that she thought she had lost from the year before and going on to be uh, a Cheltenham Gold Cup winner. It was unbelievable to be there and just to see her star go even further into the stratosphere.
0: Yeah, it's, I remember watching this race at home in, in, in the pub, Mick, and, and like, I guess the fact that it was a reversal of the previous year when Manila Indo won as well, uh, and then the fact, as you say, that it was so dominant um, that she pushed on from that final fence and, and won by what, it was a 15 or 20 length, as you say, uh, the dominance of it was probably the surprising aspect.
2: Yeah, um, it wasn't you know maybe a classic horse race or a classic uh, piece of jockey ship where you're thinking you know they get up and win by a head like that famous uh, A.P. McCoy ride in which the at the in in Cheltenham where he's literally cajoling and whatever. This was just Rachel absolutely oozing class, and just to see the just to see the aftermath of it. Like we walked back, mm-hmm. myself and Philip Quinn walked back uh, up the chute, like literally behind Rachel, and just to see what it meant to everybody and how she uh how she's probably just captured every everybody's hearts and just to be there for a part of history and uh I think it's important to stay following uh, her career over the next while like she's just re you know she's rewritten the history books uh, in so many ways already and I'm sure she will continue to do so but like to me the six winners at Cheltenham the year, year before were unbelievable but this is again this is the cream of the crop every jockey The two races that a jockey grows up wanting to win, a jump jockey, are the Aintrigan National and the Cheltenham Gold Cup. And she did it, and she did it in such dominant fashion as that.
1: There's um, a real Forrest Gump quality emerging here. Mick between been on the pitch like with Joe Canning, and then you're in the media center for the McGregor fight, and now you're like coming up the shoot behind the <laughs> behind the winning and the gold cup winner, and but at the finish line, it's uh, there's definitely a pattern here. Um, but yeah, look an incredible incredible thing as you say, like coming you know two from home, and it's the you know, Manila Endo looks like you know he's heading for home, and that's that's the way it's going to go. But as Shane said, like a really dominant win in the end. Let's move on to your final pick. It's um, another very recent one obviously if we're going chronologically it's the all ireland Hurling final this year but specifically garoad Herity uh, for um, Hagerty for Limerick
2: yeah um, similar to Owen Arkin's display for the village in 2011 um, like I would put this uh, inter-county performance up against any other inter-county performance I've ever seen here's a guy who has in the previous two All-Ireland's he scored seven points in 2020 from play. He scored 2-2 two, two in 2021. And you're just thinking, how can he top those two displays? Mm-hmm. And he goes and does it. And it's, it's a it's similar situation to Larkin as well. Needs really, like most at this time, Keane Lynch, Lynch is not on the pitch. They're two-time hurler of the year. A player who um, creates probably so many opportunities for Hegarty. And this guy just... Like he's a big guy at 6 foot 5 already but he just stands even taller again um, and you knew after about 3 or 4 minutes once he once he beautifully flicked up that ball for himself and scored one of the probably the best goals we've probably seen in an All-Ireland final past one of the best goalkeepers of all Glass. time in Owen Murphy yeah like just outrageous top corner top corner finished literally you know a goal that could not be saved he finished with 1-5 on the day Again, for me, it's probably as a defender, I probably appreciate the work and the graft even more so than the scores um He was back at his own twenty one at different stages. We'll never get the g p s stats from these elite teams, maybe until someone does a book at some stage, maybe down the line, but like he must have been he must have been covering close to about fifteen k that day. And literally, he did not probably tire until, I'd say, the 75th minute. He probably tired in the last minute, but up until that point, he was literally flawless. And he was there's a couple of times he got a ball at one stage in the second half, and Limerick really needed a score. And David Blanchfield, who did well when he came in on him, actually comes to tackle him and Hegarty literally just throws him to the ground this is a guy who's gone you know he had been running running hard for probably 72 or 73 minutes before that and he lost the ball over from about 100 yards and you're just thinking this is an absolute force of nature on this day literally an unstoppable force and Limerick needed a performance like that from one of their key men to get over the line because they were pushed to within a pin of their collar. When you're thinking about all the pressure, three in a row, all the pressure, he'd had a poor semi-final. Can he deliver anything like the previous two final displays? And he goes out and you know delivers something like that it was what well, it was. Yeah, it was probably the best inter-county display I've seen in person. Definitely the best. All-Ireland final display I've seen in person.
0: It was one, one for the purists as well Mick in that you know you mentioned the early goal but I think he gets Limerick's last point of the game as well so as you say he's going from minute one to the last minute and nice circular <clears throat> excuse me a nice circular feel to, to a masterful performance when you can lob over the last point of the game for the team as well.
2: Yeah exactly and it's just you know yourself where a lad could score a lad or a lady could score five or six in the first half and you could end up getting man at a match or a player at a match but You know, to be able to deliver that consistent display over... Like, an Inter-County Hurling game is 80 minutes now, realistically, between injury time in the first half, injury time in the second half. And to be literally on point and at your best, and as close to flawless as possible, from minute one to minute 80. And, like, I don't recall, I've looked back at it since, I don't really remember making a mistake. You know, people would have said that, you know, his tackling maybe was... uh, A bit borderline at different stages. He didn't give away a free in the All-Ireland Final. He scored 1-5. He set up loads of other attacks. He grafted. He worked. He was as much of a defender as an attacker throughout the game. And the thing, as I said as well, when the need was greatest for one of their marquee men to step up, he definitely stepped up.
0: He's, uh, you mentioned the physicality and the strength of, of Hegarty as well They're making. I think it's uh, Carbro Caleron came on on board with, with John Kiley as strength and conditioning coach the end of last year I think it was like when you look at Gro Hegarty's physique he is a he's a walking talking billboard for the for the increased emphasis I guess on, on strength and conditioning in, in the game as well in recent years
2: oh big time yeah and it's it's probably a change in physique as well Uh Bulk would have been seen as being very important, maybe, you know, even you know, if you look at the Armagh uh, Armas footballers from 2002, all big lads, big kind of musty fellas, whereas the physique of hurlers and footballers has probably changed a good bit there. You need to be uh, probably a bit leaner. You don't need to be carrying that bulk as much because you need to be getting around the pitch. So it's a it's a kind of a happy marriage between being able, being able to get around the pitch and having that athleticism, but also having the power to be able to break a tackle, to be able to deliver a hit. So Hegarty, to me, is probably the prototype of a guy like that. And yeah, just to, imagine to say he's, you know, he's delivered three fourteen from play in three All Ireland finals and capped with that one five. Uh, only a couple of months ago and just to see it and just to see a lad who was so on point so on his game and I remember Keane Lynch saying after I was chatting in the next morning he just said I was looking at uh, Grode in the warm-up and he just looked so loose and he was going around doing flicks and Mm. doing things like you do out in the garden and that's just such a good sign that's such a good sign of a player just enjoying it just reveling in the occasion and uh, he certainly did. I'm interested to hear. I know you said there to the start some interesting omissions. So I'm interested to hear what the what the omissions well, are. Well,
0: my big one. I, I was expecting when I when I came in this morning, I was expecting the Crucible or one of the, one to five snooker was what I was. Thinking. I, I, I was looking for. I was looking for five uh, five world snooker championship matches at the Crucible. But I, but no, no. I'm only slightly disappointed that you didn't include the Crucible. No WWE, but I, but I know it's still. Yeah, know WWE as well. So a couple of couple of um, slightly surprising no burr matches like I a mean,
2: Unfortunately <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I've been at the Crucible three or four times, but I've not uh, I've not been at you know a big World Final or a big black ball finish or anything yeah. like that. Unfortunately, hopefully, hopefully in time with the WWE, uh, I have some great memories. If we're talking about best I've seen, yes, I'll have I'll put loads of them. Hulk Hogan against the Rock at WrestleMania 18, which <laughs> which Willow Callan was actually at, which I'm sure he will have in his. Uh, you had to be there whenever <laughs> that comes up, but um, it's it I suppose it's it's different when you're thinking of what you've actually been at. Uh, and what you've actually experienced so they're my five probably Shane O'Donnell in 2013 the All-Ireland Final Replay would probably have been uh, a close one as well mm. just to see a guy coming in at 19 years of age and doing something like that totally from left field was unbelievable as well
1: Yeah well I'm going off to Google photographs of Mick Verney and Hulk Hogan and I fully expect to find some results given <laughs> the nature of the conversation over the last uh, half an hour thereabouts Good man you've been a gent thanks William. million Thanks a million folks Appreciate it Thanks a lot Mick Verdy there uh, It was so
0: unexpected and... You had to be there Covering Celtic at that time Was a brilliant thing The atmosphere parkade Was always great You had to be there Nobody ever talks about this game Nobody saw it uh, You had to be there OTB AM With
1: Gillette Get into your flow With the new Gillette Labs Razor With Exfoliating Bar